Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Mike Curtin, a former Columbus Dispatch editor and associate publisher and two-term state lawmaker. And Dale Butlin, a press who was the press secretary and chief of staff for the late Ohio Senator John Glenn. And we're going to discuss the legislature's attempt to limit the power of average citizens to propose and pass amendments to our state constitution. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Good to be here. Jack, you and I are trial lawyers. Um, I love jury trials. If I have a choice, uh, I'll always pick a jury uh, over uh, just trying a case to the bench. And... Um, one of the things I like to do with juries is talk to them about their participation in our democracy. Do you ever do that with your juries? No, I've never taken that approach, but I know where you're going and I like what you do. And uh, it usually is to, it's kind of like the Newt Rockney, you know, uh, uh, speech before the, you know, the football game to get the jury juiced up about uh, how important their role is. But what I like to talk to them about is that uh, the vote that they take on a jury in a civil case, it's one of eight. In a criminal case, it's one of 12. Has more impact than any other vote in our democracy. So how many people voted for the president in, two, in, 20, in the uh, 2020 election? I don't know how many hundreds of million. 100 million? No. What was it, 150 million? Biden got 80, 000, 80 million. million. Yeah, and Trump got what eighty six million. Something, but they like didn't that. count them all. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, it, even the governor. We're, we're talking four million Ohioans vote for governor. Right. So, when you're on a jury, you can participate in our democracy, in our government, with with just your vote, and it's important. And even that is being whittled down. How hard is it to get a jury trial anymore in the state of Ohio or in federal court? Harder and harder. It's harder. I saw a statistic that said that uh, Donald Trump has spent more than $10 million on lawyers so that he can preserve his right. And um, our uh, our uh, former Speaker of the House, um, Mr. Householder, Mr. Householder spent almost a million dollars to get his jury trial. So, And he's uh, still going to have to buy a pair of orange pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> But just like jury trials, uh, citizen participation in government is being restricted, um, and more so now because it's being restricted by our own representatives. And, and we got Mike Curtin here. Mike, can you tell us what issue one is? Where did it come from, and uh, and what is the impact of it? Well, it came out of the blue in lame duck session last year in November. Frank LaRose, our Secretary of State, uh, running for re-election all year long to be the chief elections officer, to continue being the chief elections officer of our state, uh, didn't mention a word about this burning platform issue. But nine days after the election on November 17th, at a press conference at the state house, he appeared with state rep Brian Stewart, Republican of Asheville in northern Pickaway County. And he, suddenly he had this burning platform issue that he announced uh, that they were introducing in lame duck session, a bill that they wanted to get out uh, by the by, signing die at the end of December onto the May ballot of uh, this year, that would require 
future constitutional amendments that uh, are citizen-led, citizen-initiated amendments that we've had the right to do for 111 years and increase the passage ratio to 60% from a simple majority. And the rationale he put forward was because, well, special interests are buying their way into our Constitution and so forth and so on. Well, they didn't get it done in uh, lame duck, but come January, Brian Stewart reintroduced it uh, as uh, House Joint Resolution 1, and uh, the supermajority in the General Assembly uh, put it on the ballot, uh, created an August election after uh, outlawing August elections uh, uh, at the end of last year. Uh, suddenly, uh, we need August elections again, I guess. And uh, what this would do is require all future proposed amendments to our state constitution to achieve a 60% uh, plus uh, passage to take effect. Uh, this is part of a national move. Uh, some very right-wing, uh, extreme elitist people like the Koch brothers, like Richard Uline of Illinois, who inherited the Schlitz Brewing Empire fortune, are pushing these things in states that have the initiative, basically to take citizens out of the process. Uh, and uh, that's what we're witnessing now in Ohio. So is issue one, uh, if it passes, will it change our Constitution? Yes. And it, it the change on issue one in August only has to pass by 50%. That's correct. But then everything else after that has to pass by 60% in the years they come, correct? That's correct. And it's a very difficult level to achieve. And if you'd like to, we can talk about uh, some very fundamental good government reforms that have occurred uh, since 1913 that never would have uh, attained and did not attain 60%. So there's one other, this is Dale, there's one other thing that I think is worth pointing out, and that is if you need any further evidence that this is designed to still the voice of average people, if this thing passes in August, August 8th, what it means is that any citizen-proposed constitutional amendment will have to get 60% in order to become part of the Constitution. However, there's another way that you can get on the ballot with a constitutional amendment, and that is if the legislature passes something, they can put it on the ballot. But don't you know, they won't have to have 60%. They just have to pass a bill through the legislature. And they don't have to do it with 60% of the legislature. They can do it with 50% plus one. So that, I think, gives you a real sense for just how hypocritical this whole thing is. To get an issue um, on the ballot, let's say, you have to get petitions signed, correct? Yes. And um, uh, I know that this issue one changes that process, but uh, Jack and I were talking about the casino amendments. I represented one of those petition uh, companies uh, back in the day. And I have to say, I was appalled at how easy it was to change our constitution and basically write in a monopoly for special interests. And at that time, I was a big proponent of, of doing away completely with the citizen initiative. Why was I wrong, Jack? Well, I felt the same way. And I, I think what complicates the situation here is that it's aligned with this anti-abortion movement. They seem to go hand in glove. But putting that thought aside for a second, you know, the federal constitution requires a two-thirds vote to change it. When I draft contracts for limited liability companies, 
I usually put in there a provision that you need a supermajority of some sort to change the operating agreement, that is the governance. So in my own mind, I'm used to that idea and I like it. But yet here I am with this situation thinking, I smell a rat. I don't like it here. Well, so there's a lot there to unpack in what you said. Let's start with a casino, since that's where you mentioned. That was the classic example of a special interest piece of legislation, or in this case, an amendment that got on the ballot. But what you need to understand, in the past 111 years, only two special interest amendments made their way to the ballot. And casinos was the only one that passed. The other one, mar- marijuana a monopoly, uh, you may remember, was a few years ago. That, mm-hmm. that one went down to defeat. But in any event, and this is where I'm going to turn over to my friend Mike, but in any event, the special interest problem was fixed in 2015 when we amended the Constitution to ensure that that, that, that can never happen again. Mike was the author of that Constitution amendment that took care of the special interest problem in the state. Two points, if I may, John. One, it was not easy for the casino companies. It was very difficult. Between 1990 and 2008, Ohioans voted down four uh, casino proposals. In 2009, they approved the one that did pass 53-47 on the weight of the border counties. In the Cincinnati metro area, it passed greater than two to one. In the Cleveland metro area, it passed better, better than two to one. In Toledo, it passed better than two to one. Why? Because all of our border states had opened up the racinos and casinos. And people in those border counties, those border metro areas, were tired of seeing their friends and neighbors cross the border, go down to the riverboat casinos in Indiana, for example. And the logic was, you know what? Social mores are changing. People are going to gamble. We may as well uh, legalize it. And 30 counties approved it, 58 counties opposed it, um, but it won 53-47. And my point is the legislature could have preempted that casino amendment. They saw the social mores changing. They saw these repetitive casino amendments coming and coming and coming, and they were going to continue to come. And one would eventually pass if the legislature just sat on its hands, which it did, and allowed nature to take its course. Let me make this point. Last fall, the legislature, in a very strong bipartisan vote of both R's and D's, passed a sports gambling bill Mm -hmm. that has created a $3.3 billion annual sports betting industry in our state, according to the Legislative Budget Office. You can bet now online at 18 sports books. You can bet at all the casinos and casinos. You can bet at all the professional sports venues. You can bet just about everywhere. The point is, social mores have been changing for a long time. They've changed to the point where just last year, legislators felt free to create this humongous sports betting industry. So it was coming, and our legislators failed to do with it. So at some point, it was going to happen, and it happened now. To Dale's point, when I was in the legislature in 2015, we saw the marijuana monopoly boys coming down the pike. And they were proposing an amendment and qualified it for the ballot to make only 10 parcels of land that coincidentally they happen to own, the only 10 parcels in the state that would be uh, allowed under the Constitution to grow for commercial purposes marijuana. Well, having seen the casino experience, I co-sponsored along with Rep. Ryan Smith from Southern Ohio. He's now the president of Rio Grande College. Ryan on the Republican side, myself on the Democratic side, sponsored the anti-monopoly, anti-special interest amendment that Ohioans voted 
to approve by a 50.6% ratio in November of 2015 because we're battling an avalanche of marijuana money to get it done. We got it done, and what does it say? It says, thou shalt not use the initiative power of this Constitution to create a special benefit for anyone. The only way a special interest now in Ohio could create a special benefit for themselves would be to persuade Ohio voters to wipe out that section of the Constitution. Well, good luck with that. And, and here's, oh, you know, I forgot about that, Mike. Forgive me. But that's not what LaRose is saying. He's making it sound like the special interests are, are the constitutional threat. Yeah, and, and it's really rich that they talk about special interests on the yes side, especially since issue one itself is the love child of special interests. It was, it was initiated by a firm in Florida, and it, it has been bankrolled by out-of-state right-wing billionaires like Richard Uline, who Mike mentioned a m- moment ago from Illinois, who's already given them a m- million dollars on the yes side. But, you know, I, I think before we get too hung up in, 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 this, in the talking points of the yes side, there are a couple of reasons I should tell you that I am increasingly optimistic that this anti-democratic power grab, which is what this is, is going to get the defeat it deserves on August 8th. First, the opposition to issue one is bipartisan. Not only is every living former Ohio governor against it, whether they're Democrat or Republican, that includes Richard Celeste, it includes Bob Taft, Ted Strickland, John Kasich, Attorneys general who are now out of office but are still living are also opposing it. But on top of that, every single newspaper in this state that has taken a position on the issue is also urging a no vote. That's the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Toledo Blade, the Columbus Dispatch, the Dayton Daily News. The point is, by Election Day, I think voters are going to understand that issue one would not only end a majority rule in Ohio, but it would enshrine minority rule into our state constitution. Uh, In other words, think about this. If issue one passes, what this means is that no future amendment can be enacted unless it gets 60% of the vote, which means that just 40% of the people of our state will always be able to stop anything that the vast majority of us want. That's not democracy. That's not majority rule. And not only the 60%, one of the little discussed items, and by my estimation, the most pernicious aspect of this proposal, is it require signature gathering quotas in all 88 counties, not 44. There, There are 18 states that grant their citizens the initiated constitutional power, and none of them require a uh, all-county uh, quota like that. Ohio has 26 counties with less than 40,000 population, three-tenths of 1% of the 11.8 billion Ohioans. An 88-county signature requirement gives any one county essential veto authority over the other 87 counties, over what 99.9% of the rest of Ohioans would like a chance to vote on. So if this thing were to get approved, mark my words, opponents of future constitutional amendments that they don't like We'll, we'll focus on a few counties, cherry pick a few counties, wage a just don't sign the petition campaign, or worse, find a friendly common pleas judge, you know, to fly spec the uh, petitions that are filed at the county board of elections in those counties and just find too many T's not crossed, too many I's not dotted, and 
I'm not disparaging any court, any judge, but we know that judge shopping is as old as the hills. It goes on, and an 88 county signature requirement is a recipe for putting a bullet through the head of the initiative power that Ohioans have had and used judiciously, to, to Dale's point. They've used the power very, very judiciously, and they don't deserve this assault on their right that their ancestors fought so hard for uh, in 1912. Why did they fight so hard? Because Ohio had the most corrupt state house in the nation, and Teddy Roosevelt persuaded that, uh, that those 119 delegates at that convention, you better adopt the initiative power if you want to have the power to hold these guys accountable. You know, I just thought of this, too. This is something that, because we're now only a couple of months away from football season, right? And we know that Ohio State is going to try to avenge that those last two defeats at the hands of Michigan, right? Well, let's say that issue one was a football game. If the final score of this upcoming Michigan-Ohio State game is Ohio State 59, Michigan 41, Michigan wins. <laughs> <laughs> This, uh, when we talk about the petitions, um, uh, that's always been uh, crazy to me how that process works and having uh, know a little bit about it because of some clients I've represented. Uh, Mike, maybe you can talk about how hard or how difficult is it to get the required signatures in 44 counties and how uh, much harder, if all, will it be to do it in 88 counties? I mean, it well, seems a, to me an expensive proposition. It's enormously hard. The delegates to that 1912 convention cut a deal. The rural interests didn't want the big urban counties, you know, just rolling over them. And so they cut the deal. We'll make it a 44-county requirement. That's worked for Ohio. But it's a very difficult uh, burden. There, there's no state now that has that strong of a geographic distribution-based signature requirement. Uh, there's only three of the 18 states that have that tie the signature requirement to counties at all. Uh, so in order to uh, get the 5% of the vote for the most recent uh, vote for governor uh, in 44 counties requires an enormous field effort and a ton of money. And just last year, when Frank LaRose laid out this proposal, he was asked by reporters at the State House press conference, well, would you... Uh, are you considering an expanded signature requirement? And he said, no, we're not going to do that because that just would empower the special interests who have the deepest pockets to hire the pe more people with more clipboards. So we're not going to do that. Well, guess what? A few months later, some special interest said, uh, Frank, you need to change your mind on that. And he did. I've, well, ahead, Gonzo. listen, you know, um, I know that some of the signature collectors are volunteers, but a lot of them are paid and they're paid per signature. And, uh, you know, if you want to put something on the ballot and you're not funded by huge money, that's a very expensive part of it. And, um, you know, just requiring it in 44 counties keeps a lot of, of interest from doing it. But to expand and double it, uh, you know, it's just, like you said, Mike, it's just hard, really hard to afford. Uh, my question for you, if you want to answer this, is what happened with Frank LaRose? <laughs> All of a sudden, he seems like he's a lot more, uh, I don't know what's the word Malleable? For <laughs> yeah, to, to some of the conservative ideals that it seemed to be he really wasn't when he, when he first moved into, into statewide office. Well, the easiest way to understand it is to, you know, look at all the Republican office holders uh, across this land who witnessed what Donald Trump was doing to their party 
and witnessing something they, they never thought they would witness. When Donald Trump came down that escalator in 2016, um, the rank and file office holders in the Republican Party across this land did not think he had a chance to become the nominee. But we saw that happen. We, we saw why. We all you know, have our own notions of, of uh, how all that happened. But clearly, all the polls have shown that Donald Trump commands more of the Republican base than anybody else out there. And Republican office holders and candidates across this land just started falling in line. That if, if, if those are the prevailing winds, then we'll have to go with the prevailing winds. And uh, when Senator LaRose, Frank was in the state Senate, he was a moderate. Uh, he spoke in a bipartisan fashion. He talked about doing things on a bipartisan basis. Um, and when he ran, first ran for uh, Secretary of State uh, back in uh, in. Uh, See, he was just reelected in 2022. So in 2018, when he ran, he was still pretty much singing the bipartisan tune back then. But uh, as he uh, moved toward reelection, uh, he uh, he looked at prevailing winds, and um, he decided that in order to move up, and it, it's an open secret, not even a secret, he wants to be the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate to compete against Sherrod Brown next year. Uh, he decided to uh, do what he feels he needs to do to uh, uh, make book with who he thinks are the prevailing powers within the party, especially in the primary. And and this is probably a good point, a good uh, place to point out. A lot of your listeners, a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, well, why is this thing on the ballot in August? To to begin with, that's pretty unusual. Most people know we have the primaries uh, sometime in the spring, usually May. Then you have the general election in November. Why is this thing on the ballot in August? The only reason that issue one is on the ballot in August is because the anti-abortion zealots in the state legislature are scared to death that in November, a majority of Ohioans will vote to overturn the extremist law that they passed that bans abortion after six weeks before most women even know they're pregnant, and which includes no, n- no exceptions for rape or incest. They know that in every single place, every single state in this country, where choice has been on the ballot since Roe was overturned, blood-red states like Kentucky, Kansas, Montana, the pro-choice position has won overwhelmingly. They know it will win here, too. So you put this on the ballot in August, which, as Mike said, they just outlawed August elections uh, several months ago because they cost 20 million bucks and nobody shows up. You know, you have a turnout of 10 percent or less typically in an August election. So you try to sneak this through in an August election when you think nobody's looking and nobody's paying attention during the dog days of summer. And then if you can get this through, then in November, when the pro-choice amendment's on the ballot, now all of a sudden you need 60%. All the polls in Ohio so far have shown about 58% of of Ohioans would support codifying Roe or putting the Roe provisions in our state constitution. So that's why this thing is on the ballot in August. And I think it also demonstrates the perfidy of these guys in doing that. So let me get this straight. Are we saying that it was, in essence, the anti-abortion group that ultimately is behind getting this getting this on the ballot and, number two, getting it on the ballot in August? There were three groups that whipped the vote in the Republican caucus that 
to, to make sure this got to the August ballot. First and foremost was a high right to life, to Dale's point. Second was a Buckeye Farms Association uh, representing all the, the gun lobby, all the, all the gun dealers in the state. Because they fear Buc- firearms. Oh no, I I, I recognize the name. I, I'm interested in the connection. Buckeye Firearms. They are worried that there will be an effort in the next few years uh, for a proposed amendment to the Constitution that would do one or more things: establish waiting periods and background checks, uh, uh, enact uh, restrictions on high capacity uh, military-style assault weapons, uh, and maybe uh, you know high capacity. Um, ammunition uh, type things. Uh, nothing is on the street. There's no organizing right now, but uh, they fear that that's going to be coming down the pike, and so they want to hurry up and move the goalpost to 60 just in case. And the third group that whipped votes was the so-called uh, Center for Christian Virtue, which in my book is the biggest oxymoron of all time, but that's another discuss- discussion. <laughs> um, and they, re- they represent a lot of the far-right uh, evangelical style uh, churches and they're aligned hand in glove with a high right to life. But I believe if you put Matt Huffman, the Senate leader, on true serum, hook him up to a lie box and ask him a series of questions, you would find that his biggest concern, and he is strong right to life, I'm not taking that away from him, his biggest concern is a redistricting reform amendment that will be on the ballot uh, next year. And that is to create a truly independent redistricting commission, a la Michigan, a la Arizona, to take the district drawing power away from politicians once and for all and give Ohioans fair districts. That's the last thing that Matt Huffman wants to see take place. Uh, When the casino issues came up, at the time I thought it was a failure of leadership, a failure of our representatives to deal with the issue so that they lost an opportunity there and special interests were able to step in and manipulate the Ohio Constitution. But as we talk about redistricting, firearms, abortion, even the marijuana issue, now it seems like it's turned into more of a tactic to make it more difficult for the um, majority, people in the majority of the the opinions on these issues. We talked about the casino uh, issue, and Dale is correct. Um, That can't happen again because of the anti-monopoly, anti-special interest amendment that Ohioans approved in 2015. Uh, There's only been 71 citizen-led initiatives in the 111 years that Ohioans have had that power, and they've only approved 19 of the 71. 26%. They've been judicious. They've been careful. It's not easy to do. And I challenge the proponents of issue one. We've talked about the casino. Name one of the other 18 that you think the Ohioans Ohioans got wrong. Name one of the other 18 that if you had the opportunity to take out of the Constitution, you would pull out of the Constitution. Would you take away the 10 mil limit on unvoted property taxes? Would you take away home rule power for counties? Would you take away um, requiring the office-style ballot as opposed to a straight-ticket ballot? Uh, there have been one reform after another that Ohioans have adopted to provide better government, better quality of living, more control of their lives, even down to uh, the ability to vote their home precincts wet or dry. That was the very first citizen-led amendment back in 1914 after citizens got that power. The liquor industry was humongously powerful at the state house, and citizens wanted the ability to vote their neighborhoods wet or dry by themselves. That's where that came from. 
That was the very first initiative that passed in 1914, and Ohioans have used that power responsibly ever since. As I said, I don't think the proponents can name one of the other 18 they would take out. Ohioans don't deserve this assault on a right that they have used very responsibly for 111 years. Was the um, marriage amendment a citizen initiative or a legislative initiative or neither? I can't remember. In 2004, we did something with defining marriage. That was a Republican-led effort nationally led by Karl Rove um, uh, to put hot-button amendments uh, on ballots uh, across the country to help uh, George W. Bush um, in his campaign. And uh, that was done through the initiative process. They, the Republicans led that effort in the state to qualify that issue for the ballot. Let's assume um, issue number one goes down in flames, as the four of us would hope so. Any political fallout as a result of that? What happens to people like LaRose and other people who are advocating for it? If it goes down, I think there'll be a, uh, a I think there'll be a uh, some price to pay for that, especially if it goes down as big as we hope it goes down. This was a major, major miscalculation uh, on the part of the majority party. Um, as Dale said, to think they could sneak this by the voters. Well, they're not sneaking it by the voters. Uh, Paul Reveal has been riding his, his horse. <laughs> people, people know uh, what's coming. And, you know, fortunately, uh, this campaign in all 88 counties, the face of the campaign are Ohio's police officers, firefighters, EMTs, nurses, teachers, construction workers, hardworking taxpayers of all types who understand that this is a fundamental right that's being attacked. And when you do that, it's going to have long-term consequences. What do you see as far as other um, initiatives by citizens? You mentioned some before, but uh, specifically, do you see something in the along the lines of recreational marijuana? Because we mentioned Matt Huffman. That's an initiated statute. It's an initiated statute. So give me the uh, the difference between that and initiated uh Amendment. The amendments that Ohioans voted for in 1912 to provide um, themselves with the tools of direct democracy included the initiated amendment, the initiated statute, and the referendum. Uh, the initiated statute process works differently. Uh, folks have to uh, uh, circulate petitions, gather 3% of the vote for the most recent election for governor in 44 counties, present that petition to the legislature for the law that they want. If the legislature fails to act within four months, they must go back out on the streets and get 3% more, and they have to do that within 90 days, which is very, very challenging. Um, and if they do that, it goes to the ballot, and if Ohioans vote in favor of it, it goes into the High Revised Code. The last time that happened was in 2006 for the Clean Air Amendment to make our places of public assembly mm. and our places of employment uh, smoke-free. The reason it's so seldom used, and it's only been used three times successfully in 111 years, is there's no safety in it. You go to the time and trouble and expense of getting the voters to approve an initiated statute, and the day after it goes into effect, the General Assembly can wipe it out. There's no safe harbor provision. Many states that do grant their citizens the initiated statute power also provide a safe harbor provision stating that the legislature can't touch it within a period of time, five years, seven years, something like that, mm. absent a supermajority vote. So it's been used three times successfully in 2006 for the indoor clean air, 
1949 to allow makers of oleomargarine to color their product yellow to resemble butter, of all things. <laughs> and in, 19, uh, in the 1930s, uh, to create uh, an old age pension system. Any uh, idea why the uh, folks that are in favor of recreational marijuana chose that path as opposed to, you know, the um, the uh, constitutional uh, amendment initiative? I don't know why they chose that path. I've uh, I've been kind of mono focused on this sixty percent thing, and uh, uh, I don't have that much intel on the uh, the marijuana proposal. But I could definitely see your point about firearm. Um, regulation, but um, more so the redistricting. That seems to be the most egregious power play uh, of all that, that um, you know, that can be affected. Um, because until that happens, it seems to me that uh, Frank LaRose, of course, if he's running statewide, the issue will harm him more. But if, but at the state house. I just don't think the Republicans fear any backlash because it's hard to get a Republican ousted from office unless it's a more conservative Republican running against that person. Well, the reason I think Frank LaRose would be the biggest loser if this thing goes down is he was a person who proposed it. He is the, the state office holder who has worn this thing. I mean, it's, it's his baby. And uh, if this goes down as big as I think it may go down, I hope it goes down. Um, you know, one of the things you look for in a leader is political judgment, and to miscalculate that badly will have will have repercussions within his own party and within the people who have to choose what horse they want to bet on in a primary for that U.S. Senate Republican nomination. Well, and it may be why he is drawing um, a little bit more um, uh, clear lines about why this amendment or, or why he's proposing this because of the abortion issue. Because if he can um, make it one issue, then he's going to get a lot of support from, you know, the people and the conservatives on that issue, whether he wins or loses, because he championed that type of a right. Yeah. And and in fact, uh, even though LaRose and many other Republicans uh, want to say that this really isn't about abortion, this is this is really about special interests. This is about special interests polluting our Constitution. Well, the first point I would make is that the women of this state are not a special interest. They are a majority of our population, right? That's, you know, the first point I would make. Uh, but, um, uh, and now I lost my train of thought completely. Um, <laughs> uh, what were we just talking about? We were talking about LaRose and, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I know what it was. They like to say this isn't about abortion, but in fact, LaRose, and they have it on tape, was at a Lincoln Day dinner up in Northwest Ohio here relatively recently, and he said to them, "You know, the, some people like to say this about abortion. Well, let me just say this: I'm pro-choice, uh, I'm I'm uh, pro-life, and I know that you are too. And this is a hundred percent about abortion. And even as, so, in fact, that is what it's about. And if this thing goes down on August eighth, if uh, issue one goes down, I can promise you." That one of the, you know, Ohio has one of the most extreme anti-abortion laws in the country, in the entire nation. When you prohibit abortion after six weeks, after just six weeks, again, to repeat myself, before many women even know they're pregnant, and you have no exceptions for rape or incest, what you do, in effect, is you're going to have more of these 
horrible situations like we had a few months ago where a 10-year-old girl right. gets raped and gets impregnated and has to go to another state because in this state they would force her to carry that fetus to term. That is extreme. That is not where most Ohioans are. And these guys are scared to death that this extreme piece of legislation that they've made the law in our state will be overturned by the people. And they don't want the people doing that. Have I been asleep, or has Governor DeWine been silent on this issue? He's been asleep. He's been very quiet. Uh, early on, before this made the ballot, when uh, it was in the legislature on its way to becoming on the ballot, uh, he was asked by reporters in a, in a scrum uh, where he was on it, and uh, he said he would vote for it. But since uh, publicly saying he would vote for it, um, Almost nothing has come from the governor on the issue. I think he's watching it very carefully, and we'll have to see. If you think about the things that are affecting the Ohio citizens' right to govern, I think gerrymandering is one of the biggest uh, issues and, and affects it. Um, I was making a list. I, I think the courts are stepping in way too much, probably because our legislatures aren't doing enough nationally and in, in Ohio. Um, but then you have all of the voting laws that make it harder to vote, more difficult to vote. And then you have these initiatives like this to raise the threshold of citizen-initiated uh, ballots and statutes. I mean, what else is there? They, they just, uh, it seems to me we're getting closer and closer to where ordinary citizens are going to have very little say in their government. That's exactly right. Instead of the voters picking the picking their office holders, you're going to have the office holders picking their voters. That's already what's happening. And, and if I just say one other thing, look, a lot of people decry, including me, a lot of people decry the polarized state of our politics and the fact that we're so uncivil, but the fact that there's such a great divide. Well, one of the reasons for that, if, if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, it would be the gerrymandering. Because what happens is, with the aid of computers now, you can, you can fix the district down to the street level and the house level so that you know, you, you can be uh, absolutely assured that only a Republican or only a Democrat is going to win in that district. So, typically in politics, in a democracy, you have compromise, right? That's, that's the lifeblood of democracy. But when you have a gerrymandered system where a Republican knows that the only chance he or she has of losing is in a primary, is not in a general, because once they get the nomination, now that puts a premium on not compromising in the General Assembly or in, in the general politics. But now what if you change that? And so that you did put some change on the ballot that passed that said, insofar as you can, you make every district as evenly split as you can between Democrats and Republicans. Now, all of a sudden, Republicans know that to win, they've got to get some Democratic votes, and Democrats know to win, they got to get some Republican votes. Now, the dynamic is completely reversed. Now, the premium is on compromise, not on polarization. So if we could change one thing, that's, that's the thing I would do. I have to say um, or tell you both, all three of you, that uh, in my travels over this last week, I've been up to northern Ohio and back a few times, and the signs to vote no on issue one are 10 to 20 
to the signs to vote yes. And it's very, um, very heartening to see that, that people are putting signs out and they're engaged in this issue, even for uh, an August election. So uh, I, like all of you, um, uh, hope that the uh, citizens of Ohio don't relinquish a right that they don't have to relinquish. And uh, in the... Um, and they uh, uh, vote no on issue one. But uh, thanks to both of you for the uh, the education and the comments. Uh, Mike, I know that you are a uh, constitutional historian. If we could have you back sometime to talk a little bit more about the Ohio Constitution, I think that would be wonderful, too. I would welcome that. Thank you. That, that would be fun, wouldn't it? Oh, and before we go, we should pitch the fact that Mike is going to be debating on television, on statewide broadcast television on, Mike, take it away. The 25th of July, Tuesday night on NBC4, but all the next star stations in Ohio will be carrying it. Myself and Allison Russo for the no side, Frank LaRose and Mike Anadakis for the yes side. 7 p.m. live, one hour on the 25th of July. Beautiful. Yeah, we had Mike on our podcast, and um, we, we really enjoyed talking oh, to we him. We did, but, yeah. But uh, there's obviously a reason he's on that debate. Got it. <laughs> well, we want to thanks. Uh, we want to thank WOSU and our sound engineer Kevin Petrella, and uh, the gent who's succeeding him, Dalton Jones, for helping us. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long.